From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made last summer in Missouri. Levi Hormuth is 16. As a transgender teen, he began receiving testosterone the previous fall. When Missouri passed a law banning transition-related care for people under the age of 18, Levi and his mom, Becky, thought Levi would be protected since the law grandfathered in people who had already been receiving therapy. But there was a catch. According to NBC News, the law also allows providers of that care to minors to be sued by their patients until they turn 36 years old. The hospital where Levi was receiving his care informed both Levi and Becky that the, quote, unsustainable liability would lead, it to, for, for lead them to decide not to provide the care. And Becky told NBC, quote, we both just sat and cried together on the floor of his bedroom. He connected with those doctors, and they're like family to us. They know him personally. His big, his big worry was, who's going to help me now? End quote. Lawmakers across the country introduced hundreds of bills targeting LGBTQ rights in 2023. NBC News reports that 75 of those bills became law. And according to a Reuters report from August of last year, at least 142 bills restricting gender-affirming health care for trans and gender-expansive people were introduced in 37 states last year. That's nearly three times as many bills as were introduced in 2022. The majority of those bills were related to uh, what is known as gender-affirming care for trans youth under the age of 18. As our guest will tell us today, even when bills targeting LGBTQ rights do not pass, the rhetoric uh, or sometimes misinformation surrounding them can stay with communities. And we're talking about the state of LGBTQ rights, the law surrounding them, and what our guests would like to see. I'd like to welcome to the program the director of LGBTQ Life at the University of Rochester is Carl Raymond, who's back with us. Thank you for being back on the program today. Thanks so much for having me. And Chris Hayashi is Director of Advocacy and Action for the National LGBTQ Task Force and in town for a leadership lecture series at the University of Rochester. Chris, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Uh, what's the event that people should know about, Call? Yeah, we're having our uh, LGBTQ leadership lecture uh, featuring Chris Hayashi. Uh, we're very excited. Um, it's going to be from 6 to 7.30 this evening. Uh, if you go over to our University of Rochester events page, you'll find it there. We have a big calendar. Um, so we're going to have dinner from Selena's. We're going to hear from Chris. It is very exciting, and it's a great talk that we get to do every semester. 6 p.m. tonight. 6 p.m. tonight. There you go. Um, and uh, we can post a link to registration and information there if you want to take a look at our website. Um, Chris, and you want to just kind of give us a, a broad overview of the work that you do and what that typically entails, and we'll kind of talk about what we're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, thanks so much for having me. So I've been involved in movements for social justice, racial justice, for LGBT rights and specifically trans rights for a couple decades at this point. And I will say for the last 20 years have really been focused on fighting for the rights and lives of trans and non-binary people across this country, particularly as you were just saying, we've seen this escalation in the attacks on the rights and lives of trans and non-binary people. Um, where does your work typically take you? Um, all, all over the place. <laughs> I mean, the reality is that, and we've seen this happening at this point since going on a decade, that the conservative right is really using a, attacking trans people um, in states all across the country, from the South to the Midwest, um, through these laws that are really about attacking our ability to just be who we are and to live our lives. So uh, I get all over the country if I possibly can. Well, so in the couple of, I think a couple of months that we first heard that Chris Hayashi was coming and we booked this conversation, we've seen no shortage, of course, of news stories of states and, and legislation and bills proposed, but also different media coverage and responses to stories. And I'd, I'd like to work through some of what we've seen so I can understand where our guests are on some of these issues. Whenever I mention a subject like this, I get feedback immediately. And Call has been here. We've talked about this before. Um, my guess is this is part of the work that you do as well, too, just kind of communicating with the public. I mean, how would you describe your role now as the director of LGBTQ Life at the University of Rochester? Yeah, we definitely do uh, some education, uh, trying to help allies understand more about our community. 
Uh, also do a lot of services and programming for our LGBTQ students. Uh, we're very fortunate at the University of Rochester that we have a lot of support for our students and a lot of structures that have been created uh, to create a really good environment. Uh, but what that means is that we have a lot of students coming in that need services from places where they're not able to get them. So I spend a lot of time talking to, for example, parents of per from students who might be incoming uh, from different states saying like, hey, what does it look like here? What does this look like for care um, for my child? If my child goes to the University of Rochester, what does the culture look like? What does the climate look like? What does life on campus look like? Have a lot of conversations like that. Talk to a lot of students about things like coming out. Talk to faculty and staff as well. Uh, I do a two-part educational series for them talking through LGBTQ things so they can logistically understand and create better supports for our students. So a lot of conversations like that, as well as um, I do some like grand rounds. I've done that for our University of Rochester Medical Center, our Department of Psychology or Psychiatry. So that has been helpful to sort of get the word out. Here's what's happening in the world. Here's what this means for us here. Here's ways that we can support our community. And I also help out the university think through ways to be more inclusive and how to remove barriers. So I have a very cool job here. Do you have a sense for how um, significant the population of LGBTQ community students is at the University of Rochester now? Yeah, so for our undergraduates um, in School of Arts, Sciences, and Engineering, which is our largest undergraduate population, we started asking uh, a few years ago on our applications if students are LGBTQ, which is an optional thing that they can indicate. We're sitting at about 18.5% that are able to indicate that. That doesn't include our international students who aren't able to report due to country-specific reporting, as well as domestic students who aren't out or haven't spoken to their parents yet. So I'd say our number is probably closer to around 25%. About 25%? Yeah. What do you think that number would have been a generation ago? A generation ago? I think... And, and I mean out and sort of part of community, because I, I don't want to erase. I want to ask... When we talk about sort of a community, people living in an identity that they would describe as part of the LGBTQ community. Yeah, I think the number would look lower because we didn't have as much language accessible to people around their identities and the way that they felt about how they were existing in the world. So the more visibility we've had through things like media, the more conversations we're having, um, the more we're seeing people people are beginning to develop language. We are a community that for a long time was told to sit down and not talk about ourselves and that we would then be safe. Um, since then, we've been speaking about ourselves. We've been creating our language and our definitions in real time so that we can understand our own experiences and each other's experiences. And so those numbers will have gone up just simply by people having language to describe their experience. I would say it would have been, you know, a generation ago, significantly lower. I mean, I would say at least 10% lower probably, maybe even more depending on the comfortability people had being out at the time to parents and in other places without the amount of visibility, education, and language we've seen over the last several years. Chris, what would you say about whether there is a consistent thread in the legislation that you are that's on your radar that you're kind of working either on or against. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do also want to say kudos and props to all the work that Colin folks are doing at the University of Rochester. I got to meet some of the students and the work that the institution is doing to really try to create a space that is safe and welcoming to students is just really incredible. So just a lot of kudos for that work. Um, so, so this is what I'll say, and I think it's important to maybe give some some context and history. So, trans people, even before this current time, right? We were already facing intense violence, harassment, discrimination, just lack of having the ability to have our basic needs met, right? And this is particularly true for Black and Brown trans people, for trans migrants, for trans people living with disabilities, for youth, elders, people living with HIV. Like, that was already the case a decade ago and, and had been, right? And then about a decade ago was when we started to see these anti-trans bills 
um, begin to pop up across the country. And at the time, you know, this would have been like 2014, 2015, we were talking about a handful of bills. But what we were seeing that was different was that this was a very concerted and strategic attempt by the conservative right, right? It was an organized strategy. And so since then, over the last decade, we've seen an escalation in these anti-trans bills and attacks, which was also in the midst of this last decade, right? We experienced the Trump administration. And under the Trump administration, the federal government had an all-out agenda, which was really about erasing our, our very existence and you know, really attacking our right to just live our lives. So we've really seen this escalating over the last decade and culminating in this current moment in time and where we're continuing to see a growth in these anti-trans bills, which are really about limiting our access to live our lives, whether it's about healthcare for young people or adults, whether it's about students and young people being able to go to school, to play sports, to have identity documents that represent who we are. It's really about limiting our ability to just live our day-to-day lives like everyone else. So I believe we're, you know, we're just like a month and a half into this current year, and there's already 400 bills in states across the country attacking trans and LGBT communities. Let me read an email that I have from a listener named Claire who is... I think obviously from the UK, a a British expat living here. Claire says, living in the U.S. has been mostly a pleasure, but this is one issue where I think my native UK gets it right. And I think Claire is talking about, uh, questions on gender affirming care. So let me finish the email. Claire says, much of Europe has slowed down on this issue, and for good reason. We should be kind to everyone. We should respect bigotry, respect children as they embark on a process of discovering who they are and what they want to do in this world. But we need not abandon our responsibilities as parents and guardians. When a 12-year-old decides that they want to start taking drugs or plan for surgery, surely there is a middle ground between mockery on one end and capitulation on the other. We can help guide children before anyone consents to treatments that will affect them for the rest of their lives. That is from Claire. So let's start with that. What would you say to Claire, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I I would say uh, a number of different things. And first off, that healthcare for trans people, for trans children, is like all other healthcare, right? You have a medical provider, you have a doctor that you're working with, and they're the ones who are recommending the care. So the the healthcare that we're talking about is the same type of healthcare that everyone else in this country and the world should have access to. The other thing that I would say is that I believe that all of us want the freedom to be ourselves, right? And we want that for the young people, for the children in our lives, to be able to be who they are, to be able to fulfill their dreams. And what we are seeing is that there are certain politicians within the conservative right who are really trying to put us in boxes and to deepen divisions between us as a way to build their power and to move forward their agenda. Okay. Uh, Carl, what would you say to the email there? Yeah. Um, we've certainly seen in, in the UK um, some issues coming out against trans healthcare, uh, similar to the ways that they've been happening here in the US. Um, I think there's some misconceptions that are happening and that creates some confusion. So as a starting point, I would say we have a lot of good research from many years that show that gender affirming care and gender affirming care is like an umbrella term, right? So that means respecting people socially, using proper names, Mm -hmm. proper pronouns for people that feel right to them. Um, It means it can mean different things for different people. Um, And so we have a lot of research that shows, particularly for our kids, our trans, non-binary and gender expansive kids, that when we provide levels of affirming care for them, suicidal ideology goes down, mental health issues go down, um, 
people begin to feel better, experience joy, and things like that. When we talk about gender-affirming care and we speak about it medically, particularly when we talk about it in terms of people under 18, overwhelmingly, that typically means puberty blockers is most frequently what we're talking about. And the research bears this out, that that is overwhelmingly what we're talking about. And what that means is that we're not forcing somebody to go through puberty, which is already a traumatic time for everybody who's gone through it, in a way that is really terrible for them in that they may experience dysphoria, their body is changing in ways that is really damaging to them for mental health reasons and other reasons, right? And so we have medical practitioners, like Chris said, we we allow medical practitioners and parents to make decisions for their children. By us legislating differently, we're taking that out of the hands of professionals. The research that comes through the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, all these places say overwhelmingly and completely gender-affirming care is safe when we allow parents and their providers to make decisions in the best interest of the kids that are talking to them. And so that is their responsibility to do. Taking that out of their hands and say we're doing that to protect or help children is disingenuous. Um, so people also have a lot of fear when they start to talk about things that are irreversible. And this has been sort of like a red herring that's gone up in the discussion in a way that is truly problematic. Um, there's this talk like people are doing surgeries on small children. That doesn't even make sense. Like we don't even begin to talk medically about puberty blockers until we're beginning to talk about puberty. That is delaying puberty until, for most people, the age of 18, when they're consenting to what they're doing at that point. So I think we have to be careful about what we're talking about and talking about the truly important relationship between medical providers and patients that they're providing care for. So there's there's a, a lot there. I, I want to start by saying, I don't know, based on Claire's email, is it correct that Europe, Claire says, has slowed down on this issue or has, has Europe largely changed course? Is that a fair description? I don't know if it's monolithic. It's probably different place to place. The, the UK has, has taken a step back and trans rights in the in the area of providing trans rights but that's not true for all of europe okay that sounds correct chris yeah okay um now when it comes to jennifer mccare i'm i appreciate getting a definition because the notion of respecting someone's identity honoring the pronouns that they have asked you to use and seeing that part of them as authentic and honoring that. That's different, of course, than what Carl just described starting around the age of puberty, which is different for all kids, but you know, there's a range of hormone blockers, if that's the right term, and then surgery. So what I think what you're saying, Carl, is first of all, the idea that people are doing surgeries on young, like little kids is not happening and wouldn't happen. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, because um, as you know, in the culture wars, there's all kinds of things that g get shared out there. I think what Claire is saying is, Claire doesn't put it this way, but Claire it seems to be saying, parents should decide until kids are adults. And that's what I think some of the bills are, like the Missouri bill that I was reading about, a number of states. Chris, you're probably seeing states with a lot of bills saying, hey, 18 is the, is the new legal age of any intervention, right? I mean, Missouri is one example. How many states are looking at that? Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, there are over half the states, nearly half the states in the country have passed legislation that bans health care for trans young people. And I think what's important to know is what, what the impact of those laws are right, like a number of them are um, a number of them are are under litigation, right? Like a number of these bills, there are lawsuits. But what we know is that for the trans young people who live in this, those states, for trans people overall who live live in those states, that one there's a real increase in hate and intolerance towards trans people and LGBT communities broadly, right? Because imagine like you're a young person 
in, say, Texas, and you hear your elected officials, right, the leaders of your state, talking about you and your lives and your family in just horrible and dehumanizing ways, right? So the impact that has on individuals, on communities and families. And the other thing that I would say is that what we what we know the impact of these bans, what, what we've seen in terms of the impact of these bans is that trans youth and trans people are losing access to healthcare, right? Like already, even before these bans were happening, we faced barriers to accessing care. We faced discrimination um, and so on. And so already our access to healthcare was limited. And with these bans, it's gotten so much worse. Like we, we know there are families who are having to make decisions about, do I leave my home? Do I leave my home state because my child can no longer get their health care here, right? And we also know there are many families and people who want to stay, who even if they wanted to leave, like they couldn't afford to leave. So families are having to make really tough decisions about literally just how they live their lives and keep their children safe. Like we've even heard about situations where families are having to separate, where like a parent will stay in the home state because that's where their job is. And the other parent will have to take their child to a state where there is not a ban. So the the impact that we are seeing on trans people and trans children is just truly devastating. Yeah, I mean, certainly there is undeniably a well, culture is the wrong word, a rising kind of tide of bigotry in a lot of states and a lot of places, and it's not just states. Increasingly, this country is blue, purple, and red based on urban, suburban, and rural. I don't want to, you know, talk about every, you know entire parts of the country as a monolith. There's, I'm sure, there's degrees, but it's not just individual states either. So, depending on where you live or where you grow up, you might feel comfortable in your identity, and you might feel entirely not, um, which I think it bears repeating because. Sometimes we talk about New York as a blue state. And, you know, Carl, you probably have students who come from all over the world, uh, different communities and different backgrounds. But a blue state is probably not fully descriptive of the range and kind of different ideas, cultures, et cetera, norms in this state. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, even um, when you leave Rochester, even our suburbs right around Rochester vary in color uh, from red to purple to blue. Uh, even in just Monroe County. And as we get out, like we see in other areas of the country, as we get to more rural areas, they tend to get more red. As we tend to get to uh, city areas, they tend to get more blue uh, with little variations in between. So we people are people who are coming to us, college students that are coming to Rochester are coming from a variety of different experiences where they're coming from, whether it's in the state or beyond. So I think that there are some... Perhaps critics is the wrong word, but people who might support some of these proposed laws who come from a pretty good faith background where they might say, listen, respect all kids, let them explore, let them find who they are. But kids often change their mind. Kids often go through different ideas and, and phases, et cetera. And if you assent to a procedure that can have permanent effects before they are at the age of adulthood, then, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. I think there are plenty of parents who will express that. I think there's probably pl plenty of parents who are blue-leaning or, you know, more progressive who might feel that way. So, Carl, let me start with you. What would you say to that? Sure. Um, I would say this is very similar to sort of the gay panic that we had back in the late 90s, this sort of trans panic idea of, Kids are just experimenting. They don't know who they are. They're being influenced by peer pressure. Uh, people know who they are. People know who they're attracted to. People, people know how they feel and are experiencing gender. I think importantly, this is sort of like the beauty of puberty blockers. It, it, it allows a situation where we're not forcing somebody to go through something super traumatic and puberty blockers are it, it's like what it sounds like it sort of pauses things and then there's like a move forward from there in the future and so for people who have these ideas that that 
people under 18 have sort of this fickle understanding of their own experience, which I don't agree with. But if you agree with that idea, puberty blockers are a good way to move forward and allow that human to not experience something very traumatic in the interim before they're at an age where they're legally allowed to make decisions for themselves. And I think this is where it is so concerning that we've taken these conversations and decisions out of the medical arena and put them into a political arena. And whenever we do that, that's incredibly concerning because we have people who don't know what the research suggests. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand what is happening and what you know, what it means to have puberty blockers, what it means to have these conversations, what the mental health outcomes are if we force trans and non-binary and gender expansive people to go through puberty only later to then have to engage in more gender affirming care to reverse something that we could have simply paused from happening if you really believe that your 16 or 17 year old don't know who they are at that point. And so I think that would be sort of what I would say about it. Chris, you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would I would echo all of what Cole said. And I would just particularly emphasize that these these decisions are about medical care, right? Again, like these are decisions that are being made with a young person or child, their family, and a doctor, right? There's an entire process, protocol, and procedures that medical providers follow. Right. So I, I really agree with Call. Like these are ultimately medical decisions that are made in the same way that any family would make a medical decision about their child. Right. And ultimately this is about the the well-being of a young person. And to, you know, what you were naming before in terms of the kind of increase in intolerance that we're seeing, I would say in, in parts of the country more so, but really cross the board. And the impact of that on people, on trans young people is deeply devastating. And I just have to name, Cole and I were talking about this on our way over, that this week we learned of the murder of a non-binary 16-year-old in Oklahoma, right, who was brutally beaten in the school. We know that the school did not call an ambulance and died a day or so later. Targeted for their identity? Um, well, this is what I will say. It's in Oklahoma. It's in a state and a school district where we know that the conservative right has been pushing a very clear anti-trans, anti-LGBT agenda. And this is where this murder happened. It's one of the reasons I asked Call about what it is like on a campus like U of R, where Call is the director of LGBTQ life and works with faculty, works with students, and now estimates the LGBTQ community is probably around 25% on campus. That would not be at all tenable in the kinds of school settings that Chris just described, just in terms of safety, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think... No, and, and when we're talking about the case of Nex, who was murdered, um, Nex had been being bullied for a year, and a lot of that was around trans identity um, additionally, it's a school where a superintendent has a very anti-trans agenda, and they brought in one of the leaders of Libs of TikTok to be to help with their culture of belonging in their school. And so, this is in, in a state where they were just passing a bunch of anti-trans laws. So, although they're still investigating, it seems like there is a good amount of evidence that this sort of environmental situation for me, and this is, Chris and I were talking about this on the way here, this has echoes of Matthew Shepard with being in an environment where people were experiencing this gay panic idea and then find somebody and take out this like hatred that's being fed to them in a really terrible way on this person. If you recall back in the late 90s in Matthew's murder, it was also head wounds that a day or two later ended up you know, creating a situation where he succumbed to death in, in, in the hospital in the same way that this 16-year-old non-binary student did. And so it is very concerning for our community that we sort of got rid of the sort of gay panic. We finally got that taken care of, but now we're experiencing trans panic that is seeing the same level of 
vitriol and sort of violence and something that particularly our trans women of color have been bearing the burden of for many years in our community. And it's just getting worse with this rhetoric. Call. I also want to reference um, a communication I had with a, a doctor sometime last year, probably after a conversation on this program, uh, a doctor who wrote to me privately, asked not to have their name shared because they're concerned about being viewed as one thing or another when there's so much heat around certain issues. But this doctor wrote to say that gender-affirming care can be extremely helpful and, and is often successful. The doctor wrote to me to say that um, when it comes to gender blockers, that it's more complicated than just a pause button, that this doctor said we need more research and it's good to ask for more research and get it, that at the very least it does look like it could affect bone density long-term, height issues, that kind of a thing. Um, but I, again, I, I, I'm relaying to you, the doctor said, gender-affirming care has certainly seems to have its place and has a lot of value. I was basically just, the doctor kind of wanted to chasten me for not talking about some of the possible questions about gender blockers. Yeah. So there was this article. And I am not a doctor, obviously. So. <laughs> there was that article that came out. You remember it was like a couple years ago, Chris. There was that article that came out. And I think it was in like Reuters or one of those. And they were talking about this very same bone density sort of thing. And a bunch of people from the medical profession came out and said, uh, the people you had doing this don't have the credentials to do it. And there was a bunch of misleading stuff here. And so... There's like two parts. Like one part is the idea that anything in medicine is ever settled. It's sort of like saying we shouldn't give anybody cancer treatment going forward because it's just not settled. I mean, we still have questions about like, are there going to be side effects from that? And it's like, well, that is the very nature of science and medicine. And in any care that we're providing, we should absolutely continue to do studies and look at what it means. It doesn't mean that we should stop care because we have a concern for something that might potentially be a possibility for somebody someday. That would make it so that we never moved forward medically in any way. Um, and a lot of people who talk about this bone density thing are talking sort of specifically about this article. Um, and I, I can't remember what it was called, but it was fact-checked by a bunch of people in the profession saying like, these are some misleading statements that are being made here. And no, you're right, we don't know everything that's going to happen but that's the same with any medication that you have anybody taking um people under 18 the same thing we have a lot of medications that we prescribe to people for a range of things and to say oh there might be side effects of that that we're not sure of so we're going to hold back that medication until we know more is is simply not how how medicine works and how we move forward what we do know is that um, puberty blockers make an enormous amount of difference in the lives of trans, non-binary, and gender expansive kids. We know that they experience joy and they experience euphoria, and we know that they feel seen and respected and suicidal ideology goes down significantly, and things like depression and anxiety go down significantly. And so we have a lot of things that we, we do know and have really good science about. And so I always caution about these sort of things that might be out there that we don't know about that might happen in a small percentage of people in stopping us from providing care that we know really works. Anything you want to add there, Chris? Yeah, you know, I, I would just again really echo everything that Call said and, and say again, like, gender-affirming care, medical care for trans people is no different than any other medical care, right? And we've all seen the commercials on the TV that talk about medication. And at the end, there's all the list of like the things that could in a small percentage of cases go wrong, right? Like it, it's it's no different for trans people and the type of medical care that we need. Um, and then the, the, the last thing that I just wanted to add in, because I know we were talking about Nex and Nex's murder. And I, and I just think it's always important because as a community, as trans people, we experience these types of losses too often. And too often, it's just names that will be in the paper here or there. And we know that all of us are people with families and communities who love us. And so I, I just want to read a little bit more about Next because they had family, they had friends who absolutely loved them, right? They enjoyed nature. They had a cat named Zeus. 
They enjoyed wa watching The Walking Dead, drawing, reading, and playing, right? This is a young person who was facing bullying and harassment, and they were loved, and they were also thriving. Um, I, I also want to let maybe let Call um, elaborate on a point about suicidal, suicidal ideation. One of the common bits of pushback sometimes I hear sounds like this. People will say, yes, puberty is traumatic. Childhood can be traumatic. Middle school is traumatic. High school is traumatic. And what we should be doing is helping kids adjust and, and weather difficult things, become more resilient, explore, find themselves, and learn that what is difficult doesn't have to be, you know, the end of their lives. I think, which I, by the way, as a general statement, I, I hope, I think everybody agrees with. Like, there's a lot of things that we have to learn to help kids through. Mm -hmm. I think what Call is saying is this is a category that's different that you don't put in that category as just saying, "Hey, you're going through a hard time. You're trying to find yourself, um, but it doesn't have to rise to this level. We can help you." You got to hang on. We'll respect you. And in the end, as you get older, if this is what you want, we will support it. But we can't get all the way there now. You're saying that's a different category, that it's not like middle school is hard, puberty is hard. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, yes, I think middle school is horrible for everybody. And I think that we learn a lot about resilience during middle school. Um, I also think about this through the lens of equity. And I know we've, we've all seen those pictures where it's like equality means everybody stands on a box and some people can see over this fence to see the baseball game and some people can't because we all get one box. But with equity, somebody might need two boxes and some people might need zero boxes to see over the fence. And that's what I what we need to think about when it comes to gender affirming care with our kids, like our trans non-binary and gender expansive kids. This is about equity. Like they are still 100% going through all of that other like traumatic, like hard stuff about being in middle school. They're just not doing that on top of developing a body that doesn't align with their experience of who they are which is traumatic for people at all ages. Um, and also it creates a secondary thing that happens. So we have like A, going through like the regular stuff. B, our body developing in a way that is deeply uncomfortable and can cause a, a really high level of trauma over everything else that's going on. And C, oh, later when you need to correct that, now you have to have surgeries to correct that because by the way, we didn't, take care of it at this point. So it's like, it's trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. And so like, when we talk about the regular resilience, middle school is terrible thing for sure. This is a, a separate bucket of trauma that we're just dumping on a very specific group of, of kids. And it would be like taking healthcare away from any kids. It's like, it would be like saying, okay, if you're somebody who needs a disability accommodation, we're just going to not give that to you until you're 18 because we just feel like middle school should be traumatic anyway. And like, if you get this disability accommodation, you're just not going to learn to overcome. And it's like, no, that's not true. And being trans and gender expansive and non-binary is not a disability. I'm saying that this would be similar to removing medical care from one group of people for a specific reason versus another group of people for a reason. So I think that's more the way I look at it. Yeah. And, and Chris, when we look at laws, which is what, if, if you're just joining us, Chris Hayashi is here, the Director of Advocacy and Action for the National LGBTQ Task Force. Chris is in town for a leadership lecture series at the University of Rochester. That event is happening today at 6 p.m. Um, and once again, I just want to make sure you get you the details here. It's uh, 6 p.m. Where? It is in the Feldman Ballroom, which is on the second floor of Douglas Commons. You have free parking and library lot, and it's the Lori L. Jean and Daryl Cummings LGBTQ Leadership Lecture. We are super excited. Oh, and we're going to have dinner by Selena's, so please register at our University of Rochester website. Love to see you there. 6 p.m. tonight. Um, so, Chris, some of um, the, the so-called slowdown that Claire referenced, and I have a separate email from someone kind of raising similar issues. Looking at Europe, it cites the fact that a lot of European authorities are saying, until we get more research, we are going to pull back on allowing medical intervention. 
that we want to see bigger bodies of evidence that say this is what we can expect. This is what's ex common. This is what's uncommon but possible. And until we get there, we, we are going to pull back. So I, I think Sweden, I don't think it's all European countries that Claire said, but UK, yes, maybe Sweden, maybe, I don't know, maybe a few others. What do you make of that idea that saying until there is more research, we are going to limit what could be a, a medical intervention on a child? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Cole spoke to this earlier. And of course, like, there's always a need for more research. But what we're talking about in terms of gender affirming care for trans people in terms of gender affirming care for trans young people, that these are, are, are medical protocols that a doctor works with a family and the child to put in place, right? These, there is an extensive amount of research that shows the positive benefits to trans children and trans young people of getting access to this care. And I think what's important is to pull back a bit and see the broader context of what's happening, right? The conservative right is really trying to push forward an agenda that is ultimately seeking to deepen divisions between all of us, whether we're talking about between trans people and non-trans people, whether we're talking about migrants and non-migrants, like the, the same people and forces that are moving forward these attacks against trans people are also attacking voter rights. They're attacking immigrants. They're attacking the reproductive rights uh, for all of us. So that I think it's just important to, to pull back a bit and see the broader political context and agenda that's being waged really impacting the lives of trans children and young people. Um, Mel puts this in an interesting way. It says, if gender is fluid, why concretize gender in children? What do you think, Carl? First, I also want to say on the, on the last point, I totally agree with Chris. And also, there is a bunch of really good research, which is why the American Medical Association, American Psychological Association are coming forward with what they're saying, with the guidelines they're proposing. So it is definitely out there. Go check it out. We do have a lot of it. There are a ton of people doing this work. Um, we talk about gender being fluid. Um, I think sometimes it is taken out of context in a place like this. So I'll give you an example. Um, people understand how they feel and how they feel about their bodies and the way that they are experiencing gender. One way to experience gender is being a gender fluid person. And so what that means is that whether it's over the course of a day or over a course of weeks, the way that you're experiencing gender yourself may shift. And so the question seems to be like, if that's the case, if the way you're experiencing gender shifts, how do you make an, a determination when we talk about medical, social transitions and other things? This doesn't change the way that we know how we feel about our body. So I'll give an example. I've had a student who was an engineering student and said, oh, okay, I'm a gender fluid person. I now have language for that. I understand what that means for me. I'm gonna get an Excel spreadsheet and track the way that I feel gender at different times and actually did that and looked at that and was able to say, you know what, this is the way that I'm feeling gender a larger percentage of the time. And this is the way, a specific way in which I'm feeling dysphoria. These are the parts of my body that are making me feel dysphoric. And so based on the data that that person knows about themselves, they were able to make a healthcare decision. And so I think when people say gender is fluid, sometimes they think of it as like, I'm going to be cisgender in this moment. And then like next week, I'm going to be non-binary. And then the next week, I'm going to be cisgender. And then the next week, I'm going to be a trans person. That is not the experience of the vast majority of people. And so this idea um, we sometimes see it in a way where somebody, and we have historically see this in queer communities too, where somebody might be like, I'm a bi person. And for the rest of their life, they're like, yes, I am a bi person. We might have another person who says, I'm a bi person. As I think through my bisexuality, I think I might actually be a queer person in this way. And so 
This is very similar with gender. So the way that people sometimes see it is somebody will say, I'm a non-binary person, or they'll say, I'm a trans-binary person. And then as they think through their gender and their experience of it, that might shift a little bit in that area for them and their understanding of gender. This does not mean that the medical experiences they're having are shifting. And actually, the research bears this out in such a beautiful way. We just got the National Trans Survey. We're super excited. It was from 2022, the largest one we've ever had. 90,000 trans people answered that survey. To give you an idea, the researchers who are looking for the, quote, detransitioners use the same sort of efforts to get the word out, they got 100 people. We got 90,000 trans people in the US who answered the survey. And we learned that 98% of people are happy with what they have done, taking HRT, um, that's hormone replacement therapy, um, doing gender affirming care, 98%. That's such a huge number. We also have research from the past um, five years that says of people who have had gender affirming surgeries, only 1% regret it. 1%. That's like the lowest number ever. I mean, for people who are getting knee replacement, it's over 15%. Hip replacement sits around 7%. On average for surgery, around 10%. And so 1% shows us that this bears out. People know how they want their bodies to feel. And if we're stopping medical care because 1% of people feel a different way, that means we're taking away knee surgeries, we're taking away hernia surgeries, we're taking away cancer surgeries, we're taking away everything because those are at much higher percentages. So what it comes down to at the end of the day is not trusting trans, non-binary, and gender expansive people to know their bodies, but we absolutely do and we absolutely know how we feel in our bodies. And on that note, what are the right and right, what is the appropriate set of questions that medical providers should be asking um, if someone comes in at really whatever the age is, but someone comes in and is exploring options for themselves, how probing call should it be or Chris or both of you? Yeah. And, and, and is that questions for families? If it's a minor, is that a question for parents or guardians? Is that a question the doctor should be asking? Who should be doing that? I think it's a question for medical practitioners because they know what's going on. We do have families that unfortunately will get misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation out there around things like the rapid onset gender dysphoria, which has been debunked by the American Psychological Association, and we just can't seem to get it to go away. I think it should absolutely sit with medical providers um, and medical providers who understand affirming care. Um, and I do not know what questions any medical providers should be asking anybody ever. Yeah, sorry, I'm not a doctor either. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, I I asked that question because call bringing up knee surgery or, or knee replacement. It's interesting because um, yeah, I, I was compelled to look up the data on that because I saw it invoked in a letter section of the New York Times after one of their recent pieces on transition. Um, and as probably is typical, they got a lot of feedback. And one of the, the emails that I was reading and I printed for this program, um, the, the emailer, Charles Yellen Omaha wrote to the New York times and said, in your recent article, you further stigmatized healthcare for transgender people. Transition care may be good for some people. It may not be for others. This is a basic premise of medicine. People must have the right to make decisions with their doctors on what is right for them. If you want to take that away from them, you have to take away knee replacements as well because one in five people are dissatisfied with their knee replacements. That's from Charles Yale in Omaha. Now, in that same set of letters, Maxine Doak in Doylestown, Pennsylvania wrote, my doctors prescribed me testosterone at 15 with minimal questioning. When I was approved for top surgery, I had just been released from a two-month stay in teen rehabilitation facility after suffering severe suicidal ideation. Now I'm 17 and I feel my adolescence was taken from me. Detransitioners are viewed as rare who made a mistake. And it's all our fault for not thinking our transition through, despite doctors and what activists assure us every step of the way that this was the only way we could ever be happy. I'm just told this was all my fault. So I feel for that person writing that note. I, I, I take Carl's point about the survey that, that was just published, 90,000 people 
better numbers on this. I, I certainly don't question research that says most people who go through this process are are satisfied with it. Um, is there too much emphasis on detransition in the media, do you think, Carl? Oh, 100%. If you look at the data, you'll see that uh, for detransitioners that speak in states, it's the same 10 to 12 people because they couldn't find any more folks. So we have hundreds of people who are trans, non-binary, and gender expansive in the states speaking out about their experience. And we have the exact same 10 to 12 people being brought around by sort of this like ideologue group of right-wing people. And that is super concerning to me that 10 to 12 people's stories in every state outweigh the people of that state. Additionally, in the New York Times piece, when they talk about the percentage of people who are happy with their care, their gender affirming care, they're referring to people specifically who were getting prescriptions from a medic from a military group like so if you're in the military and you prescribe your prescribed HRT you go and get your hormones from this place and they use their numbers which is this is like the wonkiest science ever just the amount of people who didn't pick up their prescriptions anymore like there's nowhere else they could go um so that their numbers are really weird like we look at real science um but yeah absolutely this detransitioner idea is is super concerning in that 100 so we found 100 people across the country, you find 90,000 people who are not part of this group. That's saying 0.001% of people's stories, these very compelling stories that are told over and over again by the same very specific ideologue people who are being brought around by think tanks that are trying to restrict our rights. Their stories are more meaningful and we should stop care for them from 90,000 other people. So 99 point whatever percentage of people. It is to say that about any other kind of medical care, medical care is outrageous. Well, let me wrap by saying Chris and Carl would love to see you tonight, 6 p.m. Do you need to register in advance, Carl? We would love for you to register in advance so we have food for you. You've got food from, from Selena. We have food from Selena's. Which is phenomenal. Uh, it's tonight, 6 p.m. The event is happening at the Feldman Ballroom in Douglas Commons. Yep, uh, University of Rochester, River Campus, free parking in library lot. Um, it's the, the LGBTQ Leadership Lecture with Chris Hayashi, who's the Director of Advocacy and Action for the National LGBTQ Task Force. Thank you for being here this hour. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Carl Raymond, Director of LGBTQ Life at the University of Rochester. Thank you for being here this Thanks hour. for having me. Appreciate it. From the whole team at Connections, thank you for listening. We're back with you tomorrow on member-supported public radio.